smaller copper line that went to everybody's house and we never dropped a call ever i call somebody and we could talk to japan and you, you would never drop a call now people call me i lose every day somebody calls me and oops sorry my oh, oh we're live okay we can get started now um had a little problem with youtube getting started so sergio's got it fixed and so we can go ahead and get started and we read that so we're going to go to this day in christian history today is i don't know what is today 15th 15th of october so there's the 10th 11th 12th 13th 14th and 15th okay october 15th what happens when god captures the heart of an uneducated british parlor maid Gladys Allward was a mailman's daughter born near London in 1902. While working as a housemaid, she was converted to Christ at the age of 18. Immediately, she set her heart on being a missionary to China. After being rejected by the China Inland Mission because she did not meet their educational standards, Gladys determined that she would go to China on her own and started saving almost all of her modest wages. Then in 1930, she heard of a 73-year-old missionary in China, Jeannie Lawson, who was looking for an assistant. Immediately, Gladys wrote, offering Miss Lawson her services. Finally, the reply came that if Gladys could reach Tianjin, I guess that's how you pronounce it, pronounce it, uh, present-day Tianjin, on the coast of China, the missionary would take care of her from that point on. On October 15, 1932, a small group of friends gathered near the Liverpool Street Station to see Gladys Allward off to China. She traveled by train and boat to The Hague. From there, she took the Trans-Siberian train in spite of the danger as Russia and China were at war. At one point, she was nearly detained in Russia, but she was eventually able to go to Tianjin. From there, she finally joined Jeannie Lawson in the city of Yangchen in the remote Shanxi province of northwest China. There were two other women opened, uh, oh, there the two women opened an inn. After Jeannie Lawson died, Gladys continued to operate it herself, entertaining her guests in the evenings by telling them Bible stories. Gladys gained the most, gained the trust of the Mandarin of her city, who appointed her as the foot inspector to enforce Chiang Kai-shek's edict against binding the feet of young girls. She asked for permission to share her faith as she traveled doing her inspections, and it was granted. As a result, she had an open door to share the gospel with Chinese women. In 1936, Gladys became a citizen of China in order to identify herself even more with the people. The late 1930s in China were chaotic as the nationalist government fought the communists and the Japanese. In the midst of the chaos, Gladys was touched by the plight of the orphans and unwanted children and took them took in five of them. In 1938, Japanese bombing raids began, the first one damaging Gladys's inn. With the Japanese army approaching, she set out for a remote mountain village with her five children, accompanied by 40 of her converts. She had been to that village previously at, as the foot inspector and so was well received. There they took up residence in a large cave. By 1940, Gladys had taken responsibility for Nearly 100 children, the majority of them were orphans. Realizing that she must lead them to safety, Gladys embarked on a 240-mile journey to Xi'an, the capital of the neighboring province, with her children. The trip was a harrowing experience as the Japanese soldiers were never far behind. Moving undetected with nearly 100 children in tow placed an incredible strain on Gladys. When at last they reached their destination, Gladys collapsed both mentally and physically, suffering hallucinations and mental confusion. 
Fortunately, with time, she fully recovered. After being away nearly 20 years, Gladys was finally persuaded to visit England in 1949. There she won the hearts of the English people with her story of heroism and sacrifice, even dining with Queen Elizabeth. From her incredible adventures, Hollywood made the movie The Inn, hmm, the End of the Six Happiness, starring, ah, I can't read that. It's a good movie. If you want to see it, watch it. You'll really enjoy it. Starring Ingrid Bergman. We're in, oh, I gotta give you a couple prayer requests. Rick has his uh, heart surgery, which we talked about last week, delayed to 20 October. And uh, so that'll be next Tuesday. He'll be, uh, he'll be having his open heart surgery. Rebecca's brother, Robin, has schizophrenia, and he hears voices. And he reads the words simply to keep the voices away. And uh, her daughter, Genevieve, is her, her dad daughter's... Her daughter, Genevieve's dad, is dying. Sorry about that. Praying for her strength and for her father's heart to turn to Jesus before he does die. And also, Genevieve could use a friend at the Christian school that she has started at, so... We'll go ahead and open in prayer. Heavenly Father, you've heard these prayer requests. And uh, you know what's in their hearts. You know what their needs are. You know the uh, difficulties that people face and the uh, trials that they have. And we would ask that you would be with them and help them through their trials. And uh, we would certainly pray for this class that it would be something that would be honoring to you. And that uh, what is presented would be proper and right. And if there's anything that's wrong, that you would have me find out about that and change it so that no bad doctrine would be presented. And also that the people that hear it, even if they never come to the video again, would be alerted to the fact that there was something wrong and to uh, amend their doctrine so that there's nothing that would lead them astray. Lord, we pray this, that you will be glorified. And we certainly pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. <sighs> Sorry about that. I saw the movie, and it's a good movie. And What's the name of it? The End of the Sixth Happiness. I would tell you the story behind it with Ingrid Bergman, but I wouldn't be able to finish the class. Go read about Ingrid Bergman's conversion. Movie? Because of that movie. I just can't, I can't talk about it. Um, we're in uh, Galatians 4, verse 1. Yes. So hang on just a sec. Let me get there. Saying she was saved because of the... she was saved because of what she did in that movie and let's just stop okay Galatians 4 verse 1 there we go okay what I am saying is that as long as the heir is a child he is no different from a slave although he owns the whole estate okay and same idea but I'm gonna read it because it's different enough now I say that the heir as long as he is a child does not differ at all from a slave though he is master of all. Okay, Galatians 4, verse 1. She died soon after that movie was made as well, but before she did, never mind. I just can't. Go read her story and you'll find out. Uh, Galatians 4, verse 1. In the previous chapter, and in par particular, verses 23 through 25, Paul had spoken about those under the law as being under a tutor something that someone who would tend to the child as a guardian would do. It's a tutor would teach the child when they were young, and it was not a schoolmaster so much as a person that would teach them moral lessons of life and 
he would take him by the hand and lead him to school and he'd lead him around and he'd tell him this is what is right and proper this is what's expected of you when you take over your father's house and so on so that's the idea of a tutor or uh, carol how are you i was talking about you yesterday um good though only good um he will now expand upon that thought comparing the child here uh yeah comparing the child here termed the heir who was under a tutor to a person living under the law so i hope you all understand that he's comparing this child which he is calling the heir it's uh and he is this child is under a tutor okay and he's comparing that person to a, a, a person that's under the law okay so israel is under the law they are under a tutor and the purpose is to bring them to an understanding of christ and to full maturity so that they can accept the grace that christ offers okay there it's a little hard to understand because i can't seem to get my focus after reading that but um the word um where is that yes this heir this child as long as he is a child does not have the right to run the estate israel still does not have the right to run the estate they have never graduated to adulthood okay the last seven years of the tribulation period or of their time under the law which is the tribulation period is intended to bring them to that fullness to that mature state where they will finally be able to understand the grace of god and lead the nations under christ during the millennial reign of christ that's the purpose of this okay he doesn't have the maturity the child doesn't or the understanding of what to do in order to keep the estate obviously and so even though he is an heir to the estate at that point he does not differ at all from a slave that's paul's words think of uh israel right now we know that uh the law is what begins with b ends with bondage anybody it's bondage okay you're you're in bondage okay that's jesus says that paul says that all of these people say that and uh so uh they are as slaves when you're in bondage you're as a slave they are not mature they are not ready to take over and the entire point of the law was to get them to understand that when the messiah came that they would say i get it now and they did not get it and you know there's something to be said about it obviously you've got the law and you think that you're the special group of people which we're going to talk about in this week's sermon we're going to see exactly what uh this is leading to it's uh it's called uh deuteronomy 6 16 through 25 then it will be righteousness for us. Okay, so uh, Moses is to telling the parents what they are to say to their children to understand why they are observing the law, okay? And one of the points that he makes is a point that uh, Burke pointed out to me a couple months ago, and I did a sermon on it, that he might bring us out, that he might bring us in. The purpose of bringing them out of Egypt was to bring them into Canaan. But Canaan, at least temporarily, was under the law. And they did not understand that the law was a stepping stone to understand their need for grace okay whereas on the outside the people that never had the law were not god's special people and so there was no pride involved there was no thinking of superiority or anything else and so when they read the message of christ it just dawns on them all of a sudden immediately i get this but israel is thinking it's about us when in fact it's not about them at all is we're going to we saw it last week and we're going to see it again this week is that god made a promise to who to bring them into the land Israel. Well, abraham. abraham isaac and jacob okay was it had nothing to do with them they're just the descendants that he could have picked any generation he could have waited ten thousand years or he could have done it three years later there was you know it was the lord's sovereign decision he just picked a group of people at a certain time and he said okay it's time for us to go on into the land so it really had nothing to do with them at all other than the promise to the fathers 
And the promise wasn't of the law because the promise was made before the law. Okay? So they're not getting it. They think that it's about us when it's about him. Okay? And so they never came to that maturity. The word here translated as child is the Greek word nipios. Nipios. It refers to an infant and figuratively to a simple-minded or immature person. Thus, it is a minor who has the inability to properly handle the full rights that he may be entitled to. Think of Israel to this day. They are immature in their theology. I don't care how smart they are as rabbis or how smart they are as sages and scholars of uh, the Talmud. They do not understand the theology of the Bible, and the Bible is all that matters. All of that codification of Jewish law, which is in the Talmud, means nothing to God. The only thing that matters is his word is saying, I'm going to send the Messiah into the world. He is going to redeem the people of the world. And he even tells through the prophets, such as Isaiah, it's too small of a thing to redeem Israel. I'm also going to redeem the Gentiles. I'm going to redeem everybody. And they never got that. They still have not got that. And the Gentiles are the enemy. It's all about us. God loves us, even though they don't love him. They don't show the honor they should for the Lord. And once again, this is not picking on Israel. This is just the truth of Israel, okay? And it's the same as any person before they have come to Christ. Exactly the same thing. We have the same attitude, and then when we come to Christ, we realize how dirty we were before we came to Christ, how unworthy we were of the favor he bestowed on them. Right now, they think they are worthy of God. They're unworthy. And until they come to that understanding, this is what Paul is relating to, okay? So, um, Let's see here. Yes, thus it is a minor who has the inability to properly handle the full rights that he may be entitled to. Keep thinking of Israel. A slave has no right to run an estate. Instead, he takes orders, he performs whatever functions are required of him, and he keeps out of those areas his master has forbidden him to participate in. The child of the master, though the heir, and Israel is the heir, we know that, is in exactly the same position. And so he truly is no different than the slave in this regard. And this is despite the fact that he is master of all. Paul's words once again. Israel will be the lead nation of all of the nations during the thousand-year reign of Christ. I'm sorry for people that are replacement theologians that believe that the church has replaced Israel because the church is not given that role. They're never assigned that role in Scripture in any way, shape, or form. It is the house of Israel, the house of Judah. They will be the lead of the nations on this earth. Where is the church at that time? They've already been taken out. The church has already been removed. I'm sorry for people that don't believe in a rapture because it's going to happen. They'll be a little more surprised than you and me, but they will be raptured as well. Okay? And I feel bad for people that believe in a mid or a post-tribulation rapture because that's not what the Bible teaches. It teaches that we will be out of here and then the Antichrist will be revealed and that will be revealed in his signing of a seven-year peace deal with Israel. And from that time on, they'll go through the tribulation period. The world's going to fall apart and eventually Christ is going to come back and that will be uh, the resolution of all of those things. And finally, Israel will call out. They will no longer be this child that's being talked about. They're going to become the heir of the promises. All of those great messianic promises, which do not belong to the church, that belong to Israel, will be realized in Israel. God is faithful. He is wonderfully patient with these people, and at the same time, he's also very tolerant of people that mishandle the theology related to Israel. Those people are saved even if they believe the church has replaced Israel. Israel has nothing to do with a person's salvation. Salvation is solely belief and faith in Christ 
that is it. Okay. When you, you know, uh, one of my friends was talking about antinomianism, if you know what that is. That means uh, uh, you are saved, and what do you have to do after salvation? Are you an antinomian, or are you a person that believes that you, uh, after being saved, you will naturally have good works, okay? Well, one, the Bible never says that. It never says that you will naturally have good works. You have to actually apply yourself in order to have good works. But uh, the Bible teaches, this was his question. Okay, he first came out and says, how would you define this word? It's exactly that. You are not under law, okay? Antinomianism means basically we'll just say no law. You're not under law. You were saved by grace through faith, okay? You have no law. Now, some people will divide up the law, and this is what this guy that he was reading and sent me the uh, information on said, they divide the law of Moses into two separate parts. What are they? they everybody does this. Everybody divides. Ten Commandments and the rest. Well, the Ten Commandments are a part of what we would call the moral law, because there's more than the Ten Commandments, but moral and civil. You're not required to do the civil laws of the law of Moses, but you're required to do the moral laws of Moses. That's what they would say, okay? That is incorrect. And the very simple argument for that is the fourth of the Ten Commandments. What is the fourth of the Ten Commandments? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Do we observe a Sabbath day? No, because we come to church on Sunday, or we come to church on Tuesday or Monday, or we don't go to church at all. It doesn't matter. Paul says in Romans 14, it doesn't matter. Some people esteem one day above another. Some people esteem all days the same. Let each man be convinced in his own mind. Okay, and then in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, yes, he says that, why are you doing these things? Why are you observing these feasts and these Sabbaths? And he says, those are a shadow, but the substances of Christ. So if we have to observe the moral laws, then we are disobeying the moral laws by not observing the Saturday Sabbath. Everybody got that? The moral law, the civil law, the law of Moses in its entirety is done. Just because there are repeat laws in the New Testament, which there are, which we are required to obey, Okay, but we're not being imputed sin if we don't obey them. Please understand that, 2 Corinthians 5, 19. God is not counting men's sins against them, but you are implored, you are instructed, you are commanded to obey these things. If you don't, you're not imputed sin, but you're supposed to do these things, okay? That's the responsibility of following Christ. But antinomianism means that you say there is no law. There's nothing that naturally follows salvation, okay? Some people will say you are saved and you must do good works to prove it. My argument back to him was, if you must do good works to prove your salvation, then your salvation is contingent upon good works. It doesn't matter if it's a thousand years after you were saved, five minutes after you were saved, a week later. You, If you have to start doing good works, then it means that your salvation was contingent on it. It says you were saved by grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift. A gift is something you don't earn. Come here and take this, and that's yours, okay? That's a gift to you. If I say, I want you to have this, but, you know, it took me six years of my life to type this up and I want a penny for it, is it a gift? No. It was a pretty good deal. Well, if you like my commentaries, but it wasn't a gift. You had to pay a penny for it. Okay? So, a gift is a gift. And when you receive it, it's done. There's nothing you need to do after that. That does not mean, and this is where people try the sleight of hand, and they say, well, then you're teaching license. No. And nobody, nobody even brought that into the equation. Nobody brought in doing wrong into the equation, except the person that wants to defend his, you have to do good works to prove that you're saved. I didn't say that. 
All I'm saying is that there's nothing I can do to please God beyond belief in Jesus Christ. That's it. I believe in Christ and I am saved. Whatever happens after that is solely up to me and the Lord and nobody else. I may die 10 seconds after I'm saved, and so I can never do good works. Does that mean I wasn't saved? Of course not, okay? This is what people need to understand is that there are categories. I call them boxes. Always keep the theological boxes straight, and you will always have proper doctrine. But if you mix the boxes, your doctrine will get sloppy, okay? So salvation is by grace through faith, and then after that comes works if you're going to do works. But my question always is, I always ask this question when somebody says, well, you have to have works to prove that you're saved. What's my question? You've probably heard me say it a thousand times. Two words, both begin with W. What works? What works are going to prove that I'm saved? You tell me now, what works? And then they start saying, well, and they ham haw around. They won't give you an answer. And I'll or tell you, what? They want to control you and they'll tell you. That's, exactly. Then they'll tell you what to do, which would be like a church of God or, you know, uh, uh, you know some of these, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, Wesleyan traditions. But Absolutely. But most people will just sit there and go, beep, 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 beep. they have no idea. You ask them what works and they, well, you have to do something. Well, then you tell me, what is it that the Bible says I have to do after that to prove that I'm saved? And the answer is not in there. Okay. And so what you uh, need to understand concerning that particular issue, what works is that whatever works you do that are works done in faith, you will be rewarded for it. In any other work, I don't care what it is. You walk an old lady across the road, and if you're not doing it because you have faith in pleasing Jesus Christ, you're not going to get a reward for it. You're just helping an old lady across the road. You're not doing it for the glory of God or for anything, any other reason. If you are walking down the road and you're talking to Jesus about how beautiful a flower is, that is a work of faith because you're demonstrating faith that he's actually there listening to you, speaking to him which he is. He's listening to everything you say. He knows your heart inside and out. If you were driving down the road and you're singing songs to the Lord and you're saying, I love you, Lord. I love you. He is going to reward you for that. But if you give $15,000 to a church and you're not doing it because you are doing it for the sake of Jesus, it doesn't mean anything. People try to buy their way into heaven. They try to buy their way into to good favor with God. And that is not how you do it. If you want to give to the church, give to the church. If you want to give to Kenya, give to Kenya. If you don't want to give anything, but you got it in your heart that you love Jesus and you're just going to please him all the days of your life, you will be rewarded. It is faith that God is pleased with. And I'll show you proof of that before we go on. We'll get back into this particular verse, which is all relevant to what we're talking about, because Israel does not have faith in Christ. And without that, they are still under a tutor, okay? I'm going to take you to the book of Hebrews, and I'm going to take you to what chapter, Bert Carrico? 11. 11. Thank you. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, elders obtain, the elders obtained a good testimony. By faith, they obtained a good testimony. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. Okay, so that's faith. I'm going to talk about somebody on Sunday that is, everybody here knows him, everybody here has probably seen him on TV, and maybe even you watch him, and I'm going to show how faithless this person is. And yet he's a very well-known evangelist in Christian circles. Why? Because he doesn't believe this. He doesn't believe this about what I just read. Let me read it again. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which were seen were not, were not made of things which were visible. Okay? What does that imply? that God is the creator. And the Bible tells us how he created. Is that correct? 
It tells us in how many days he did it, and it tells us the story of that from the beginning. And yet this person is going to deny all of that, all of that, okay? Now, he doesn't deny that God is the creator, but he denies the account at the beginning of the Bible. So God is not competent to tell us what we need to know is basically it, okay? So there's no reward for that guy in that. That doesn't mean he's not saved. It doesn't mean that he's not getting rewards for other things, but he will have no reward for what he is teaching in that particular aspect. Coming soon to a Sunday near you. Now, I'm just going to go very quickly through Hebrews 11. By faith, Abel. By faith, Enoch. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Sarah. These all died in faith. And it goes on. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Isaac. By faith, Jacob. By faith, Joseph. By faith, Moses. By faith, Moses. By faith, Moses. He kept... Uh, by faith, the walls of Jericho. And what more shall we say if the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samtha, Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith did all of these things I'm going to tell you about. And down at the very bottom, and all these having obtained a good testimony through faith did not receive the promise. Okay, that is what pleases God. If you're trying to please God through any other avenue, you are not pleasing God. Just demonstrate faith in him in whatever little way you can or whatever big way you can, and you will be rewarded for it. And if it's not a faith, then it's, and so that's the answer to what works. It doesn't matter what somebody thinks of you. What matters is what God thinks of your heart in relation to him, and that is it. Nothing else. When somebody asks you or tells you that you have to demonstrate works in order to prove that you're saved, ask them what works. And if you can't figure it out, just take them to Hebrews 11 and give them the little snapshot, the cliff note version like I did, and say, this is what God is pleased with. I don't owe you anything. I don't owe you anything. I owe Jesus Christ my devotion, and I'll make it with him on my own. I don't need you to tell me that. So uh, it, when people get into these big, long words and these big, long theoretical arguments about stuff like that, just bring it down to what is simple. Faith. That's it. Okay, so the heir will someday assume the full rights of his position. Israel or us, okay, whoever he's talking about at that point, who understands that they are not under a tutor, okay, but Israel is the prime example, okay? But that time must wait until he is ready and capable of doing so. Until that point, he may have certain privileges, but he does not have the right to the estate itself. Israel has no right to this estate, but he does have certain privileges, doesn't he? And responsibilities. But Israel has been protected as a people now for 2,000 years. Having rejected Christ, they still have the privilege of being kept as a people. God did that. And I talk about how that happened in this coming Sunday sermon. What are some of the ways that God kept Israel as a people? They kept their, their culture and their religion. And how did he do that? You're right. That's exactly right. How did he do that? Some are backward-looking, some are forward-looking, aren't they? Backward-looking? What do they do every year? The Passover. That kept them as a people, right? And he also gave them forward-looking things. You are my people, and I will give you all the glory of the future coming millennial kingdom. They don't know it's the millennial kingdom. They just think that it's the world set up for them. And okay, But they have this promise that they will be the people of the world sitting on top of all of the world, and the law will go forth from Zion, and they will be the people in Zion, and so they're going to be the exalted people. He's given them that promise, so he's done it in all different ways, and we'll talk about some of them on Sunday, but those are the ways that he has kept them. So it, they have some of the rights even now, but they don't have the privilege of exercising them. God is simply giving them, just like he 
it's you know if i'm the uh, father and my child is the heir that child has certain rights other kids can't beat them up without me protecting them other you know i give my kids certain food and the slave that leads the uh the child during the day probably gets less food than my son does because i love him more right whatever so the child will have certain rights but he does not have all of the rights and he does not have any of the responsibilities that's where Israel is right now. They have certain rights, they have no responsibilities, and they will not have them until they come to know Christ. Paul will continue to discuss this and explain what he means, but he's making a parallel to those under the law before coming to Christ. So if he's making a parallel to those under the law, who is he speaking of? Because the Gentiles never had the law. We were never under the law of Moses. No Gentile on the planet was ever under the law of Moses. And if they were under the law of Moses, it's because they converted to be of the people of Israel. That's right. Or they can do what the Hebrew Roots Movement people do, and they can impose the law on themselves, and then they can go and condemn themselves without ever coming really to Christ, which is absolutely crazy. But people want to do that. I want to be like Israel. I want to be under this bondage. I want to be under this burden. We don't want to do that. We want to yield to Christ apart from the law. We weren't given that law. Why would we want to put ourselves under the thing that has brought them all of that grief and woe? But that's some people do. Their status as heirs, I'll read that again. Paul will continue to discuss this and explain what he means, but he's making a parallel to those under the law before coming to Christ, meaning Israel. Their status as heirs was not in question. Israel's status as the heirs of the millennial kingdom is not in question. It may be by replacement theologians, by people that say the church has replaced Israel, but not by this. This, this says that those promises in here belong not to the Jehovah's Witnesses, not to Reformed theologians, but to Israel. When it says that all these beautiful things are going to happen in Israel and the wilderness and the law and all that stuff going forth from Zion, not the law of Moses, but the law, the, the management of the nations going forth from Zion, that is to Israel. That is who is going to receive these promises. It's so simple, and yet we, we muddy the waters. Okay, their status as heirs was not in question, but their rights as heirs was not yet fully developed, and it still is not. Until they come to Christ by faith, they do not have the rights of the inheritance. Instead, they remain in a position of servitude to the law of Moses, which is exactly, let me take you there really quickly, just so you can see that, the servitude to the law of Moses, they're under the law, I'll first take you to Malachi. I'll take you to the last words of the Old Testament. Okay, the last words of the Old Testament, just so you can see this. And I'll take you to Daniel, and we'll, we'll back up from there. But I just want you to see how the law of Moses, the writings, the prophets, ends. It says here, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, the tribulation period, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Okay? The Old Testament ends on a curse. It doesn't end on a promise of blessing. It ends on a curse. Okay? And that is for Israel to understand that if you fail to come to the Christ, you're going to have trouble ahead. Okay? And, and now understanding that, I'm going <coughs> to sneeze. Oh, COVID-19. Everybody run. Um, I opened this book and it made me sneeze because it's... The paper is new. Um, 9.24, it says, uh, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your city to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, 
to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. They've got six things to do. They've got three negative things and three positive things that they have to do, and they're given 490 years to get it done. 70 weeks. 70 weeks is 70 periods of seven years, or 490 years. No, this is Daniel 9, 24 through 27. 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem, which is in the book of Nehemiah, until Messiah the Prince, means when the coming of Christ, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, which is 69 weeks. 69 plus seven, I'm 69 times seven is 483 years. So from the time of Nehemiah, 483 BC, I think it is, until the coming of uh, four. Now I forgot the day. Anyway, uh, it's around 483, but it's not. It's in that area, B.C., until the coming of Christ. It'll be 483 years. Okay, anyway, um, from there, uh, Messiah the Prince shall be set seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. That tells you when it speaks of the wall. That's the purpose. 445, thank you, 445 B.C., and I knew that, but I put in 483 years, and once I did that, my brain was stopped. 445 B.C., okay, um, it says here, and the wall. What is the subject of the book of Nehemiah? The building of the wall. That's right, and so it's referring to the edict of Nehemiah. The street shall be built again, and the wall, even in troublesome times. The whole book of Nehemiah is troublesome times. They're working with one hand, they got a weapon in another, and there's a guy over there with a horn ready to blow if somebody comes, etc., Okay, and after the 62 weeks, which means after the 483 years, Messiah shall be cut off, he'll die, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come, which is the Roman people, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, and till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Then he, the Antichrist, who is of the people who came, meaning the Romans, so he will be a Roman, then he, the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. There's 69 weeks, 483 years done. They have one more week, seven more years to get this finished. And guess how long the contents of Revelation 4, 2 through 19, 10 are? Seven years, okay? It's a seven-year tribulation period. So it's telling you that is being inserted right into this little thing about Daniel right here. This is the purpose of those seven years, is to get Israel to mature so that they can become the heir. And they will. I'll take you to something that Jesus said in a second, and then we'll go on from there. Um, uh, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. In the middle of the week, three and a half years, he shall bring an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even till the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Eventually, the Antichrist is going to be taken out of the way. Israel is, according to Jesus, his own words, he says, he's speaking to Israel, he's coming down off of the Mount of Olives, and he weeps over Jerusalem. He knows what's coming on them, and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you had known the time of your visitation, but you would not. Behold, I tell you, you, uh, though I have longed to gather you as a hen gathers its chicks under its wings, you were not willing. And I say to you, until you say, Baruch Shem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. I ain't coming back. Now that's Charlie Garrett's paraphrase there, but that's basically what he said. I am not coming back until you proclaim me the Lord. Blessed is Jesus Christ, he who comes in the name of the Lord, meaning that he is God, because the name of the Lord, Jehovah, is God. So 
That's what he's basically telling them. That's the scenario that is being described by Paul right now. They are under a tutor. They failed. They're in exile. They're in punishment. They're going to go back under this tutor for seven more years to refine them to the point where they say, I get it. Just like all the Gentile nations have gotten it for so long, Israel is going to get it. Okay? So, instead, they remain in a position of servitude to the law. This would only end in their coming to Christ through his accomplishment of the law. If you find that, let me know, Burke, and I'll read it again because I want to, I think it's Matthew 23. Um, let me pull it out. I hate to misquote scripture and leave that in somebody's head, but I don't know the exact verse. I know it well enough to cite it, but um, uh, let me see if I can find it really quickly. I just I just don't want to leave something hanging with the, uh, the Charlie Garrett paraphrase if I can find it. Um, anyway, yeah, here it is right here. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house has left you desolate, for I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So there you go. That's Matthew 23, right at the end of the chapter. Okay, so um, life application, and we'll go on. Susan Garrett never showed up for Bible class. She gets a demerit. Okay, for the nine jillionth time, Paul has shown that being under the law is contrary to being in Christ. Okay, we were talking about this before class today. There are people there arguing Hebrew roots on the wall. Was it the post I made about our seven year? No, no it wasn't. Okay, okay. I, I thought maybe that's what it was. Somebody made a post, somebody else started arguing that you have to observe the law of Moses, and they start completely abusing scripture in order to justify why Gentiles are under the law of Moses, and we have to observe it and do all these crazy things. And Paul could not be clearer. He literally could not be clearer in what he's saying here. This is the nine jillionth time he has shown that being under the law means you are not in Christ, okay? The law keeps people in bondage. The gospel frees them. To mandate observances of the law to those who have already come to Christ can only be harmful to the relationship that had been established. To mandate observances of the law to those who have not yet come to Christ can only keep such a person from ever being liberated and entering into a right relationship with God. It is that serious. If you are into this Hebrew Roots movement, you may be a saved person. But if you're bringing your children up under that, they will never come to understand salvation in Christ, and they will be condemned when Christ comes. You are condemning your children or the people that you instruct in this theology by teaching them this nonsense. It, the Bible is... It's a big book. It's a complicated book. It's very difficult. Don't get me wrong. But there are certain things that are very clear when they're written in black and white. When you read them, they can only mean one thing. And these verses from Galatians are like that. They can. If you go to the book of Galatians and it says that the law of Moses is annulled, you can't take it any other way. It means that it is annulled. If it says that the law of Moses is set aside, it means that the law of Moses is set aside. You can't reinterpret that in any way. God takes the very most important theology and he puts it in black and white in a way that cannot be misunderstood. But it can be manipulated, and that's what people will do. They will manipulate the truth out of something that cannot be misunderstood. So, Hebrews, Hebrews what did I say? Well, I, I didn't mean Galatians. I meant Hebrews, and everybody should know that. Okay, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to say Galatians. It says in Hebrews that the law is set aside. It is annulled. It is obsolete. That's Hebrews 7, 18, 8, 13, and 10, 9. And Paul also says that it's nailed to the cross. And then he says that, you know, the implication is Christ died on the cross, 
and when he died, the law died with him, okay? That's uh, Colossians 2.14, I think. Anyway, verse 4.2. Wait, yeah. don't, don't read it yet. Let me pull, open Let me the page. Just ask you a question. Yes. Okay, the uh, Antichrist stops the uh, sacrifice in three and a half years. Okay. Um, is there sacrifice done after the millennium start? Uh, yeah, there'll be, and that is in the book of Ezekiel. It's generally accepted that Ezekiel 40 through 47, those chapters, is speaking of the millennial temple. And it says there'll be sacrifices and there'll be all that. Why would God have sacrifices if Christ is the end of the law? Why would he do that? Okay, well, here's a question. Let's think this through. It says, just so you can see this, let's just really quickly before we go into the next, he asked a good question. Why, or if the sacrifice ends in the three and a half year period, that is just him stopping their sacrifices, okay? And that's what's going to make them realize that we've been wrong all along because Daniel said this was coming, okay? But it says here in the book of Ezekiel, we'll just go to 40, 40, um, uh, 43, 18. They're going to consecrate the altar. And he said to me, Son of man, thus says the Lord, these are the ordinances for the altar on the day when it is made for sacrificing burnt offerings on it, for sprinkling blood on it. So they, if this is a millennial temple, which most scholars believe it is, and I won't argue it either way. I just accept that it says this and it could be. Um, uh, but we'll suppose it is. Okay, there are sacrifices going on in the millennium. Why would God do that? Okay, here's a question for you. This is what I was going to ask you before showing you that it actually says that there. Did they have sacrifices under the old covenant? Did those sacrifices do what they were intended to do? They were a shadow. It says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, I think it's verse 7, I may be wrong, that the blood of bulls and goats can not take away sins can never take away sins okay what's that 922. oh 922 okay uh, i got that wrong then um I, i'm going to take you there just so that uh he said 922 and i want to read it so that you don't have that stuck in your head but it says um uh 22 let me see 22 no that's and according to law almost all things are purified with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no remission and then in um uh it's uh, we were both wrong it's hebrews 10 verse Four, not seven. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So we're both wrong. Okay, so if they had sacrifices under the law of Moses and they didn't do what they were supposed to do, then why did they do them? To fulfill the law. To fulfill the law and to look forward to coming of Messiah. They all picture what Christ would do. So why would he do that in the temple afterward? Same reason. They're not effectual sacrifices. They were never effectual before. They're not effectual afterward. It's to commemorate the work of the Lord. Exactly what we were talking about a while ago. The Lord gives you institutions to commemorate so you don't forget. And he gives you institutions to keep you together as a people like feasts of the Lord. It keeps them as a united people. Okay. And then he also gives them prophecies that they can anticipate. And it keeps them as a people in that way too. So you've got different things God is doing. So if he's going to have sacrifices during the millennial reign, it doesn't mean that the sacrifices are replacing Christ. People make all these unnecessary leaps of thought. It's to commemorate the work of Christ, which is exactly what they do at the so Passover. Rather than that. Yeah. It'll be a commemorative. He, he, we don't need that anymore because we have him back. All right, we take the Lord's Supper, remembering his death until he comes. That is commemorative. The Passover was never to look forward to Christ again for Israel, except in the sense that it was anticipated the first time. And they commemorated that year after year. Then it was in anticipation of the Messiah. It went back first, 
looking forward. Everybody see that? That's what was happening. Well, this is looking back in order to keep the people united in understanding what Christ did. That's, it, that's all it is. It's commemorative celebrations of the work of the Lord. It doesn't do anything. It never did anything, and it never will do anything. So don't get stuck on sacrifices in the millennial reign of Christ. It is because of Christ that they are doing them, not to get rid of Christ, but to commemorate Christ. Okay, answer the question enough? Yeah, okay, good. good. Okay, all right. Um, uh, wait, I got to get back to uh, Galatians 4. I, somehow I've lost my place marker, and so I'm going to pull one of these out, and then I'll regret that because then I'll need that somewhere else. But go ahead, 4 2. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. Okay, very close, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed. And I like appointed better because God appoints things. All right, it is set, but appointed sounds more lawyerly, we'll say today, because we got a couple lawyers here. Okay, um, this verse is connected to verse 1, and it would, it would be good to cite them together for the context. So we're going to take 1 and 2 and put them together. Now I say that the heir, Israel, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. We're all slaves of sin, right? All of us. Israel doesn't differ any from us at all. They're under sin, we're under sin, all of it. They have the law, we don't have the law, but we're all bound, confined by sin, okay? So they're no different at all, but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. The father has his son, then you're no different than these people, okay? You're under guardians and you're under stewards. The child may be the inheritor of all of the estate, just as Israel was to be the inheritor of the new covenant. That's in Jeremiah 31. Behold, let me read it to you just so you don't think new covenant. That's for the Gentiles. I was listening to one for Israel earlier, and this guy was giving his testimony. He said, you know, when I was a, a Jewish kid growing up in uh, New York, I, uh, the Catholic girls used to belittle us and say, you're the Christ killers. No, no, no. You know, and he said, he thought that the New Testament was a Catholic book. He, he had no idea. And he said, I picked it up. My reading. He said, this is Jewish. These are all Jews. What were they talking about? It's because they didn't know anything. But um, so anyway, he came to understand who Christ is. He became a believer in Christ. But it says in Jeremiah 31, why he turned to Jeremiah 7, I don't know. But in Jeremiah 31, it says, who is it written to? 31 verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, new covenant in Christ. Behold, this is a new covenant in my blood, right? A new covenant with the house of the Gentiles, Israel and Judah. It says nothing about the Gentiles. The covenant was intended for Israel and Judah. We are included in it by faith, but it was not intended for the Gentiles. We are not Israel. We are not Judah. It was for the house of Israel and Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, I read this last week in the sermon, so if you want to hear more, go watch that sermon. But um, that is what's going on, is that the covenant was a new covenant to bring them into the maturity that was promised all along, okay, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were before the law. They didn't have the Lord, the law. And so in that capacity, the new covenant must resemble that, not the law of Moses. The law of Moses put a burden on them, okay? They weren't living by faith. They were living by law. And so it goes back to this and says, I'm going to make a new covenant where I'm going to inscribe these things on their hearts. It's not going to be on tablets of stone. It's going to be in them. 
okay? That is what that's anticipating, is the maturity of Israel. We, by faith, are grafted into it, and that's what Paul speaks of in Romans 9 through 11. The Gentiles are grafted in. The, the, uh, some of the uh, Jews were broken off. The branches were broken off, okay? But we're grafted in. We're unnatural by nature, okay? They are natural by nature, and when they understand this, they understand it in a completely new way. Okay, so... Read that again. The child may be the inheritor of all the estate, just as Israel was to be the inheritor of the new covenant. But like the heir, they were not ready for that to be revealed until the time appointed by the father. Until that time, they were under guardians and stewards. Now, Paul was speaking in general terms there. I applied that to Israel. So I want you to know uh, when I say until the time they were appointed by the father, he's speaking about this general precept. I'm equating it directly to Israel. So I don't want you to think that Paul said that. I am using that example of Paul because that's what he's doing without being explicit, okay? Just so I make a distinction there. Until that time, they were under guardians and stewards. Just like this child is under a guardian and steward, he's not able to take over the father's house yet. Israel is under guardians and stewards. That's the laws. That's the prophets. That's all of these things that are keeping them under the knowledge of the old covenant until the knowledge of the new can be finally realized in them. Paul is using a real life example to show why the law was given to Israel and the purpose that the law served. The term guardians refers to a person to whom the care of a boy was committed during a particular time in their development. That's a guardian. They trained them, they took them to school and even personally helped in educating them at times. That is a guardian. Think of the law doing that. Okay, I'll read it as if it was Israel. It trains them, it takes them to school, and even personally helps in educating them. One of the laws, and I'll mention it in Sunday's sermon, is that the king must make a copy of something. King of Israel. Someday there's going to be kings in Israel. This is Moses speaking. What is the king of Israel to make a copy of? And do what with it? Read it. Read it. Daily. Daily. He is to read it every day of his life. The king of Israel. That is a command. Okay? So, that is one of the things. It was to train them, to take them to school, and even personally help in educating them. So, think of that there. Okay? This was every... You want to see how sad it, of a state of affairs it was in Israel? You said he, the king is supposed to read it to the people. That's not correct. But, the law does get read to the people. I know Burke knows this. When... Did it get read to the people, and how often was it? It's supposed to be once a year. Wrong. No. Huh. Well, Ezra read it there in. in well, in after the, the exile, in, that's right. In Nehemiah, the law of the Moses says, every seventh year in the year of the release at the Feast of Tabernacles, they were to read the law to the people. Can you imagine not having the law for seven years? I can't go one day without reading this book. I can't, I literally can't. Two days ago, I was very busy. I'm getting ready to meet somebody that was coming in to visit yesterday. And so I did all of the work for two days in one. And I worked late at the mall. As a matter of fact, the guy freaked out. He said, what are you doing here? I, I was there early in the morning. I'm back there late at night. And he said, what are you doing here? I've got somebody coming in tomorrow. i got to, you know, i got to get this done. And so um, uh, it's morning time. And I have the same set procedure that I do every morning. And I said, you know, if I skip one chapter, and I said to myself, I can't, because if I do, I'll start making it the exception, becomes the rule, and I'll start reading this number of chapters instead of this. I know that's my propensity. If I do it one time, it will become the standard. And the only time that I have not read the Bible in 
morning or evening in years. And I'm going to blame them right now. It's these guys right here. We went to Wright-Patterson. Uh, no, it was the first day. We went to uh, the oh, Creation the Museum. Yeah, I went to the Creation <laughs> Museum, and then we went to the Ark exhibit, and then they wanted to go to dinner. It's already past my bedtime. You see, if you had a cell phone, I'm telling you, problem. we went we went off of the highway. We went to this place for dinner. It was very nice. It was the oldest restaurant in Ohio, and we had dinner there. And then we're going home, and we're still going home. We're still going home. We finally get home. What time did we go to bed, Charlie Garrett? Ten thirty. Ten thirty. I haven't been up past eight o'clock in years. Okay, so I actually fell asleep without reading the Bible, and I felt so bad. I, I woke up the next day. And I thought, oh, but. I can't imagine going without scripture for seven years, but that's how often Israel was told they were to read, to have it read to them at the Feast of Tabernacles every seven years. And other than that, I mean, they'd have to go to the priest and say, what do I do about this? And what do I do about that? And that is it. Well, no wonder they were a basket case, you know, but that's what happened. So stood in the rain in the book of Nehemiah. That's right. And they were weeping and it just, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you, you got it. What is your priority in life? What is your, this is my priority. This is the first thing I do every day. And I was so tempted to just skip one chapter of my reading. And I said, I can't do it because I know tomorrow I'll find another reason to do the same thing. I'm not going to do it. So anyway, um, uh, let's see here. Guardians, we just did that. Um, this was what they did. And this is what occurred for Israel while they were being taught through the many years of their need for something other than the law. The term stewards, we just did guardians, the term stewards indicates the manager of a house. He was the overseer of it. He had the authority over the entire household, including the slaves and the servants. Okay? It is pretty much what, who? Somewhere? Trustee. No, no, no. I'm thinking of an example in the Bible. He had authority over the whole house. Who said? Joseph. Very good. Joseph. It's pretty much what Joseph had authority. He had authority over the whole house. One thing was kept from him, is the wife of Potiphar, okay? So, it's pretty much what Joseph did under Potiphar while in Egypt. Eliezer of Damascus served a similar function under Abraham. As a matter of fact, Abraham said, when I die, he's going to be my heir, because there's nobody else. He's in charge of the house. This guy. Yeah, this guy. (laughs) Even though slaves, Joseph was a slave, Eliezer was a slave, okay? They were given this responsibility because they were found trustworthy and Competent. So that's the second. You've got guardians and you've got stewards. Timothy says a steward must be found faithful. I don't know if it's the same word though. So unless I check, I'm not going to comment on that because I don't want to suddenly say, you know, I could, but it'll take too long. I'll I'll look it up and then, but it may be the same word. It may not. And if you remind me in an email, I will check that. And then we can talk about that next week. But I don't want to, until I see the word, I don't want to say it's the same thing. So it, uh, anyway, okay, even those slaves, they were given this responsibility because they were trustworthy and competent. In this, Paul is equating Israel to being under such a guardian and under such a steward. The right to the inheritance belonged to them, and it still belongs to them, but they were guided and under the guardian until they became of rightful age. They never matured. They were exiled. They are going to be they are back in the land, but they are going to be the focus of attention. The church isn't going to be around for God to, you know, be focusing on. He's going to focus on Israel, the judgment of the nations. They will come to this understanding. They were kept under such care until they had been shown the law was insufficient to save them. And they're going to find that out when the sacrifice and offerings, Daniel uh, 9.27 end in the middle of the tribulation period, they're going to realize 
All of these prophecies are true. Everything that was foretold is true. And what do we do about it? And that's when they're probably really going to start turning on the superior word sermons, going back to the Torah and finding out, oh, this all pictures Jesus. I'm kidding. They'll take our, after the rapture, our sermons are going to be taken down five minutes later. But maybe not. We'll hope that's not the case and they'll be able to understand these things. But, you know, whoever. Somehow the Lord is going to work it out for them. Uh, they were kept under the guardian. Until that point, the law was intended to keep them in check and to show them how sinful sin really is. That's what Paul specifically says in the book of Romans. Uh, maybe 1 Corinthians. Anyway, he says it. He says to show how utterly sinful sin is. Okay, They never came to that realization. And so they have to go through the tribulation period to understand that. At the coming of Christ... These caretakers, the stewards and the guardians, the pedagogue, will no longer be needed. Instead, by faith in Christ, they will become the recipients of God's promises and they will have full rights within the house. Just go and read those marvelous pro promises in Isaiah, you know, that the blossoming of the desert and the rule of the nations. And let me see if I can find it. Maybe really quickly I can find you just one of the passages that... It's earlier in Isaiah, and then many of them come later. Yes, that's what I'm looking for right now. Yes, here it is right here, 2-1. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It's not anywhere else, okay? I'm just the, I don't understand how these replacement theologians can say, well, that's just symbolic, that's just spiritual. Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days. That the mountain, the mountain is a symbol of the government authority. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on top of the mountains. All of the governments of the world, the Lord's house will be above them all. And shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Has that ever happened in human history? No. And that is a promise that is made, and it is made to Judah and Jerusalem, meaning that people of Israel, it is not to the church, and how people can take that and abuse it, I don't know, but they do it. All right, 4-3. So also, when we were children, we were, slave, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. Okay, now he's speaking of the Jews there. Okay, um, let me see how this one reads, just so that we have a comparison. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage, very similar, under the elements of the world. Very similar. Okay, so... He's speaking of himself. He's speaking of the people under the law. Paul has been speaking of the heir of an estate who is, until a certain point, no different than a slave within the house as far as authority and needing instruction is concerned. He may be the master of all, but he needs to be instructed just as a slave does in every step of his life. Keep thinking of Israel while he's making this comparison. Paul now shows that his words were a metaphor for those who had not yet come to Christ. And so he says, even so, we. The we is speaking of Jews under the law. Remember what's happening here. The Jews are the ones that are coming in and telling the Galatians, you have to be circumcised. You have to observe the law of Moses. You can't be saved otherwise and all this. And he says, what are you doing? Let's go back to the beginning of the chapter or the book really quickly. 
just so you can remember where we started and why he is giving us all of this. Very simple. It's in verses 6 and, uh, through 8, but I'm going to just start. Yeah, I'll start with 6. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And then he says, which is not another. It's not a gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ, just like you're saying about these Hebrew Roots Movement people. But even if we or another, an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed, as we have said before. So and now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what he has received, let him be accursed. And then he goes into his thing, talking about Jews and Gentiles and Jews coming in and telling Gentiles what to do and on and on. That's what he's been talking about. You need to have that as the reference, okay? So, even so we, the we is speaking of Jews under the law, but it is not limited to that. He's also speaking of the Gentiles who lived under their own systems of religion within the confines of the world, because every religion has its own systems, right? You have to do this, you have to do that. Sacrifice your child or go up to, you know, the Oracle at Delphi and get your, they have all these kind of things, all these different, I don't care where you go in the world, you will see monuments to the systems of religion that man has made. Go down to where the Aztecs were and you see the altar where you can still see the blood that stained. They cut out the heart of a, you know, a young virgin girl and they'd hold it up and petition for fertility in the crops. I mean, it's all over the world you see this kind of stuff. So they all have their own systems of religion within the confines of the world. Each group was deficient in understanding what was needed to be right with God as Christians. Why do I say that? Because what is the purpose of sacrificing a young baby? Why would they do that? Because they did it all the time in Israel, right? Molech sacrificed their son to the, through the fire. Why did they do that? Why did they pick a young, innocent child? Because that was more pure. That was... They believed that that would expiate their sins. Somebody in this religion understood from all the way back at the time of Noah, it was transmitted down the line that that isn't going to work if you use an animal. Noah offered an animal as an offering, but not as a sin offering. It was an olah, a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma to God, but it wasn't a sin offering. So what did they do? Well, how do we, we have to think up a sacrifice of sin offerings. Some people do it inside. Some people do it uh, by walking up a mountain barefoot. They have all kinds of ways of expiating their sin. But some people understood that blood needed to be sacrificed, but the blood of an animal is in a different category, and so that's not going to work. So they take a little child, and they put it on an altar, and they burn it, or they sacrifice it, or whatever, right? That's what they did. It didn't work. They're doing it because they think it's going to work, but it didn't work because that child has inherited sin from Adam. And so the child couldn't take away their sin, but that is why they did these things. And that's why people do this to this day. Women, they do something wrong. They have a uh, uh, child outside of marriage, and then they say, well, I'm going to expiate my sins. I'm going to have an abortion. It's a way of taking care of the sin debt that they have. I know that that may sound crazy, but that is what's going on in the back of people's minds. I'm taking care of my sin debt with somebody else, somebody innocent. It doesn't work. You've committed a sin, and now you've just committed another one by killing your own child. It does not work because inherited sin is in that child. The only thing you're doing is taking away that child's right to life, okay? Each group was deficient in understanding what was needed to be right with God as Christians. We all are in the world, and we have no idea what's right. We're not Christians. We don't understand what God has done in Christ. So we're all trying something. Okay, I've been to many different, you probably have all kinds of 
people in your country that do different religions? I mean, it's not just Catholicism, right? You got other stuff. I mean, I don't know. I just when I was in the Philippines, I pretty much only saw Catholicism. But I've been in some countries where you have Shinto Buddhism, you've got uh, you know uh, Taoism, you got all these different religions. Do you have a lot of them in the Philippines too? Okay, so they do. Uh, so you, 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 she's been exposed to that a little bit, and we do in America too. We've got you know a meditation thing down on three hundred one, and we got Buddhism up. You want to go to a Buddhist temple, you can go up to uh, uh, Tampa, and you can go to that. Whatever. So we get a little bit of that. But in America, we're kind of spoiled because mostly we have Christianity in one form or another. And so we kind of get the, the picture that most of the world has no idea about. You go to you know India. I was talking with a lady that attends online. She's from India. She sent me an email and she says, you know, these, these uh, Hindus, I think it was the Hindus that she was talking about, maybe the Sikhs. Anyway, she said they're very moral and upright people. And I told her that's a problem because when you're moral and upright, you think you're okay with God. It's when you know that you've sinned and you need to have that sin taken away that the problem is taken care of. When you know that you're dirty, all you need is grace. When you think you're okay, you need to be given the law first, okay? So the law did not take care of the sin problem. I'm talking about the law of Moses. It highlighted it, okay? Uh, let me go back. Did I read all of that? Yeah, In this, uh, let me go back and read this. Uh, whether it's Jews under the law or Gentiles without Christ, the bondage existed and the bondage is sin. All over the world, doesn't matter what religion, including, uh, you know, the law of Moses, the problem is sin. The law did not take care of the sin problem. As we saw, it merely highlighted it. It's to show you how sinful sin is. Were it not for the provision of mercy within the law, meaning the Day of Atonement and the other sacrifices in the sacrificial system, there would be no hope for those under the law. Because what did they do? Isaiah speaks about it. Rivers of blood. You know, you bring me your sacrifices morning and day and night. And he says, I'm tired of your offerings. Well, he's the one that told them to bring their offerings. So why is he tired of them? Their heart wasn't right with them. That's exactly, they did not bring the offerings in faith. Exactly what we were talking about earlier. I'm tired. They mean nothing to me. Your holy days and your, your, your feast days are an abomination to me. Because they were just doing it like we do Christmas or, you know, what some holiday in America, President's Day. It doesn't mean anything, okay? We just go to a football game. We don't think about the Lord. And the Lord says, I'm sick of these because you're not looking to the purpose of them, which is faith. I am here expiating your sins and you're treating it like it's nothing. This is the most important thing that could ever happen to you because if I don't do this, you are condemned, okay? So, uh, there would be no hope for those without the Day of Atonement. As the Day of Atonement was a day of faith, then their annual covering was not of works, but of law. The Day of Atonement is a picture of the coming of Christ because they're in their town. They did not have to come down to Jerusalem. They're in their town. It wasn't a pilgrim feast. And all it says is that on that day, you must debase yourself. You're to deny yourself. They're not to eat. They're to fast and they're to mourn over their sins. Does anybody know that they're doing that but them? No, he could say, I'm going to work today and nobody would care. I mean, the neighbor might see him and report him, but other than that, he could do whatever he wanted. Unless he is in his heart mourning over his sins the way that we do when we come to Christ, it doesn't mean anything. It means absolutely nothing. It is a day of faith, just like our day of coming to Christ. It's a day of faith. Christ died for your sins. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. He died for your sins. If he died for your sins, it means that you are a sinner. It's a day of faith. The Day of Atonement is our day of faith, okay? If not, then it was 
not of works of the law, but of trust in God for mercy. Only in Christ is that realized. As it says, the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sins, Hebrews 10.4. And so, uh, well, that's a good way of remembering it. 10.4, A-okay, okay. Um, so Hebrews 10.4 tells us that that day of atonement didn't do anything except hold off God's wrath on them until the coming of Messiah. And if they believed by faith, they were in faith of the coming Messiah and they were saved because of that, okay? And so in that previous state under the law, all of the rites and sacrifices and all that, they were in bondage under the elements of the world. That's Paul's words there. Before the time of Christ, they were in bondage under the elements of the world. The word for elements is stoicheon. It means properly fundamentals. They were under the fundamentals of the world, like the with the basic components of philosophy or structure and so on. And so figuratively, it means the first principles, like the fundamentals of Christianity. That's what that word means, the fundamentals, the basics, okay? It further refers to the rudiments with which mankind were indoctrinated before the time of Christ, okay? He's using this word to show that all of these things have been instructed into us. Like I said, the Aztecs, you know, sacrificing the woman up on top of the, the pyramid or all these different, they're the rudiments, the fundamentals before the coming of Christ. They were in bondage to those things, okay? And including, for example, the elements of religious training or the ceremonial precepts common alike to the worship of Jews and Gentiles. That comes from Helps Word Studies. Everything I just read you, give credit to Helps Word Studies. Okay, both Jew and Gentile had worldly systems in that they did not transcend this world. They were just worldly. Each participated in ritual sacrifices. Each had certain feast days. Okay, today some Jews, the, some of the Hasidim that you see have a ritual. They don't have the temple. They don't have the sacrifices, but they know that they need to expiate blood for sin. Does anybody know what they do? They do it. You'll see them do it in New York and other places. They'll take a chicken, they'll cut off its head, and they'll shake the blood all over their children, and that's what they do. They 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 think that they're expiating sin with a chicken. Okay, it, it has nothing to do with the law of Moses. It's just something that they made up. But they're under the rudiments, the fundamental principles of the world. They've made something up, and that's what they say. This will take care of your sin. Others have their, you know, uh, they call them, uh, I think, mitzvot or uh, teshuvah. The, uh, they do righteous deeds, and they also do repentance, and they think that's taking care of their sins, okay? And so once a year, they contemplate the Lord, and it's all taken care of for them. It doesn't work that way. They have missed the fundamentals of Christ, and they're living under the fundamentals of the world, okay? So they had their worldly systems. They did not transcend it. They each had their feast days, okay? So all over the world. I was in Malaysia. I think I've said this in the class before. Yeah, we got a minute. Um when I was in Malaysia, they had uh, three major groups of people. They had the Muslims first, that was the majority, and then they had the Chinese, which was a large very large percentage of the population, and then they had the Indians, and they had 6% of the population there, and they didn't want to offend anybody. And so they had everybody's feast days were national holidays, and we had like 25 national holidays every year. And then they threw in a couple of Christian holidays just for the small percentage of them as well. They have a Portuguese population. So by the end of the, you have a whole month off every year just for days off. It was great. But they'd have Deepavali for the Indians and they'd have um, uh, Ramadan for the Muslims and they'd have um, 
you know, some of the things I couldn't pronounce. And then they had Chinese New Year and they, everything. They had holidays every, it seemed like every time you go to work, oh, you're got a holiday tomorrow. So, uh, but this is what they did. And this is what we do. We have days that we celebrate. And this is what Paul is speaking about, okay? Each had systems which only pointed to spiritual and heavenly things. It doesn't matter that the law was given by God and that the other religions were of man. They both fell under the same worldly types of workings. The Jews, under the law, had these things and they observed them and they did not observe them to the Lord and so they were worldly. I'm tired of your feasts. They're an abomination to me because they did not look to the one who gave them the feasts. All right. It's for this reason that Paul uses the same term, stoicheon, to repeat, to speak of these systems in a negative light in Colossians 2.8 and 2.20. In those verses, it is referring to any such worldly system, whether law or Gentile religion. The only difference is that the law actually pointed to Christ. Other than that, it was still only a type and a shadow. Let me take you there really quickly so you can see that. Colossians 2. I'm going to sneeze again. As soon as I open this thing, I'm ready. Okay, 2.8, I think I said, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, the fundamentals and not according to Christ. And then he says, for in him dwells all of the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything pointed to Christ. Okay, and they'll take it down to what I said earlier. I said 2.20, but I, before that I talked about 2.16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink, that's the dietary laws, or regarding a festival, that would be the feasts of the Lord, or a new moon, that would be the mandated new moon festivals that they had every year, or Sabbaths. We don't have to observe Sabbaths. There were 52 of them throughout the year, weekly Sabbaths, and then there were a couple of appointed Sabbaths. One of them was the Day of Atonement, okay, which are a shadow. They're a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is of Christ. Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head, from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Here it is, the second use of that word. Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, the fundamentals, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourself to regulations? He's speaking to the Hebrew Roots Movement people there. He's speaking to the people that are coming in and telling you, you have to observe the law of Moses in order to be pleasing to God. And he says, you're not, you're offending God and you are an offense to God. All right, so uh, if these things, even those under the law are worldly, then they need to be put aside when the heavenly and the spiritual truly comes. In Christ, they are realized. Do we have time? I don't know if we have time to do one more. We're going to try. We've got 10 more minutes. 4-4, four, four. go ahead. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman born under the law. Okay. But when the fullness of the time had come, yes, it's almost identical. Okay, what a marvelous verse. This and the next are marvelous. I wish we had got them together, but we'll start again next week, and it'll be a nice, refreshing start. Okay, this is a verse filled with wonder and delight concerning the eternal counsels of God and the marvelous plan of the ages, which has been slowly realized in the stream of human history. It helps us to understand the concept of progressive revelation. I talk about it in... Uh, 
the Genesis 6 Nephilim sermon, nobody agrees with me. They all think it's angels sleeping with men, and I don't care. It's not. Trust me on this. If you believe that, you're wrong. Okay? This is a doctrine which tells us that God slowly and methodically reveals his will to man concerning the process of redemption. He doesn't put one cart in front of the horse and say, start pushing. He doesn't do that. He reveals things slowly. He revealed the first explicit hints of it in Genesis 3, verse 15. Since that time, he has revealed a bit more at key points in history, all pointing to the coming of Christ. Understanding this, Paul now says, but this is in contrast to the words of the previous verse, which said, when we were children, we were under bondage under the elements of the world. Let me read that again. When we were children, we're in bondage under the elements of the world. Of this contrasting thought between these two, Charles Ellicott states, that which was predetermined by the counsels of God as the right and proper time when the whole course of previous preparation for both Jews and Gentiles was complete. Everything is ready. I'm sending my son into the world. It was at this exact moment in history when the right time for the dispensation of grace was ready to be revealed that Paul says the fullness of the time had come. The law had served its purpose. Those under the law had been taught their lesson concerning the need for something else. They would be properly directed to an understanding of their need for Christ. Those without the law would be likewise ready to understand what Christ had done within the law. The whole world was ready. How do we know that? There were roads in Rome that led everywhere. There was easy travel. There was a united language, the Greek language. What was his name? Alexander. Went everywhere. And he put his language all over. The time was perfect for the gospel to start out into the world. And it had a language that was very precise. Hebrew is a good language. It's a wonderful language, but it does not have the precision of the Greek for the theology that Paul introduces into the New Testament. So it can be understood but you still go back to the Greek to really get the nuances of what Paul is doing, okay? We can understand it in English. You can understand it in Papua New Guineaese or whatever. But to really get the nuances of it, you need to see it in Greek. And God did that for a reason, okay? Plus, there was all the philosophy of the Greek philosophers that helped people to understand what a trinity could be. The Jews, to this day, don't get it. We talked about that, what, two weeks ago or three weeks ago or whenever, but they still don't get it. But the Greeks could almost grasp it without even knowing that there was a trinity. And when they, you read the readings of Aristotle, you say, that guy really understood the nature of God apart from even knowing who God was. I'm talking about the God of Scripture. Anyway, so everything was ready. It was all ready. Uh, where was that? What did I just say here? I was reading it, and I got down to a quote by this guy, oh, Charles Ellicott, and uh that which by the predetermined, yes, it was at this uh, exact moment in history when the right dispensation of grace was ready to be revealed that Paul says the fullness of the time had come. The law had served its purpose. Those under the law, I read that, have been taught their lesson. They would be properly directed to an understanding of their need to Christ, for Christ. Those without the law would be likewise ready to understand what the, had been done within the law. The time had come for the world to learn this new part of God's unfolding plan of redemption. Everything was set. And so, Paul says, God sent forth his son. The word for sent forth is exapostello. God sent out like a post office. He sent out from himself his son. This is described by the apostle John at the beginning of John 1.1. And arche and halagos, ke halagos. Okay, it's in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. I don't need to go there. Okay, Jesus was with God 
and God sent himself forth in order to reveal himself to the world. In both John 1.1 and in Paul's words now, the pre-existence of Christ is taken as an axiom. He was always there. He didn't he wasn't created. He wasn't a being that was dependent on anything else. He is the creator God. He existed before creation. He always existed. He is not a created being. Paul further describes this remarkable event in Philippians chapter 2. The wonderful, this is known as, what do they call this, Burke? Philippians 2 or 5, yes, 2, um, what is it, 5 through 7? It's called the what? The canonic the canonic hymn. Okay, very good. You got that. I'm very thankful. Okay, Paul 2, 5. Let this mind be in you, which was, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Okay, is that that's all I need right there. Kenosis is the word to empty yourself, the canonic hymn. Okay, Christ came from God and entered into the stream of humanity being born of a woman. The same general terminology was used when speaking of John the Baptist in Matthew 11, 11. We do have time, so we're going to go there. I don't want to dip you guys, but I also don't want to go over and then have the video cause the, the uh, web guy a problem. 11, 11. What was I saying there? Assuredly, I say to you, among those born of women, there is not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. What did you say, Jim? Assuredly. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. Okay. Um, 11, 11. Okay. Because of this, Paul is referring to this clause not to his deity, but to his humanity. Though fully God, having come from God, he is also fully man having come through the stream of humanity. But to ensure that a full understanding of Christ's deity, let me make a note right here so I can uh, correct something that I typed wrong. Okay, uh, but to understand that a full under, or to ensure that a full understanding of Christ's deity is not overlooked, it needs to be noted that the same word for sent forth is used again in Galatians 4, verse 6. Go ahead and read that because I don't have it there when speaking of the Holy Spirit, 4, 6. 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son. Sent forth. Into your heart. There you go. Out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Okay, so uh, that's 4, 6, when speaking the Holy Spirit. Bible, the Bible scholar Bengel notes, What that means is evident from the train of thought in this passage. For we have received first adoption, then the spirit of adoption. Therefore, Christ himself is not the Son of God merely because he was sent and anointed by the Father. In other words, the deity of Christ cannot be called into question. Through Christ, we are adopted children of God. Because of this adoption, we are then granted the spirit of adoption, thus sealing our new status in Christ. That's Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. Jesus was sent from God. The Holy Spirit is sent from God. Each person in the Godhead performs his role as determined by the Godhead. In other words, the concept of the Trinity is seen in what is being relayed to us right now. You can infer the Trinity from it if you think it through rightly. And yet, though fully God, Christ's humanity is likewise not to be diminished in our theology. He was born of a woman, and he was, as Paul says, born under the law. The very law that God, that Jesus, that the God of the universe gave to the people of the Israel is the same law 
which Christ was born under. He did nothing to them that he did not take upon himself. He was, in essence, born subservient to the law. Israel demonstrated that the law could not save them and that they needed something else. As Christ was born within the people of Israel and under that same law, what would be the outcome? Paul will explain the situation in the next verse, which is next week. Sorry, guys, life application. The deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, and the nature of the Godhead, meaning the Trinity, are all tied up in the theology of the Bible. To dismiss any of these precepts leads directly down the heresy highway. Be sure to accept the record of the Bible as it stands. Jesus Christ is fully God, fully man, and the second member of the Godhead. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful blessing of this life. Thank you for all of the uh, joys that you've given us in our hearts. And uh, thank you just for how you tend to us from day to day. And Lord, if bad times come to our lives, help us to just have enough strength to praise you. And I'm certain that with that, you will be pleased. And someday we won't have any of these troubles or worries ahead of us. Instead, we'll have eternal joy in your presence forever. And boy, do we long for that day and may it be soon. But until then, give us the strength to continue on in your um, in the power of your spirit and telling other people about the wonderful things that you have done in Christ. We pray this to your glory and we pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's turn this back right here.